Radhika Jones, editor-in-chief of Vanity Fair. If you enjoy binge-watching the best TV shows and love hearing from the actors and showrunners who make them happen, then subscribe to Vanity Fair. Our Hollywood reporters take you behind the scenes of the year's most anticipated projects, the industry's biggest moves, and the hardest-fought awards races. From The Crown to The Real Housewives, we've got the inside scoop. As a special thank you to our still-watching audience, we're offering 15% off a yearly digital subscription to Vanity Fair. Visit VanityFair.com today and use promo code POD15. That's VanityFair.com, promo code POD15, for 15% off a yearly digital subscription to everything you want. Romanoff. I'm Olga Romanov. Michael Romanov. He said he was a Romanov. You know she's a Romanov. Checking in for a Romanov. I'm a Romanov. Is he tired of this Romanov shit? Nicholas Romanov. I could be a Romanov. He's Romanov too. Hello and welcome to the final episode of Still Watching the Romanovs. I'm Vanity Fair senior writer Joanna Robinson. And I'm Vanity Fair chief critic Richard Lawson. Thank you guys so much for your patience. We know that this episode is a bit delayed. We had some holidays and some traveling and all sorts of stuff got in our way, but we are finally here to talk about the season or possibly series, I don't know, finale of the Romanoffs titled The One That Holds Everything, directed by Matthew Weiner and written by Don Donald Joe and Matthew Weiner. Um, and then we also wanted to, because this is our last still watching episode of the year. We wanted to take a look back at some of the shows that we cover this year and just sort of, you know, reassess the whole experience, the year in still watching, if you will. Uh, so we're going to open up with a little Romanoffs and then close out with a little tour of some TV highlights for us this year. Uh, Richard, I, I think we were, there was a little bit of trepidation on our part, I think, in terms of talking about this episode, uh, which I should say stars Hugh Skinner as a character named Simon Burroughs, uh, Ben Miles as his terrible father, George Burroughs, and J.J. Field, who we saw in a previous episode as a character named Jack, and Harry Hilmar as Undine. And this is a, this is a sort of, uh, rushing nesting doll of an episode, if you will, because we get like several, buried uh, sort of flashback narratives told by different characters to piece together the whole story of the character of Simon who winds up not being Simon in the end or not being named Simon in the end, I should say. Um, so Richard, mm. broad, broad <laughs> thoughts on this episode. Well, this was a funny one because, well, we were, you mentioned that we, you know, we had holidays and stuff. I was in, uh, I was actually in your state, California with my family for Thanksgiving. And, uh, so I ended up watching this episode with my family, um, and, you know, my mom, dad, my sister and her fiance. And, um, so it's funny to watch it sort of with other people for the first time. Cause I haven't done that with really anything else we've talked about on this whole show this whole year. Um, so kind of brought an interesting perspective. They were like, Oh, that was so entertaining. And, uh, what, you know, we also had watched the Catherine Hahn episode just before that. And they loved that. And on second watch, that really is so good. Mm-hmm. Um, but you know, so I was like, well, let's dive into the next one. And it's obviously so different in tone from the, from, uh, the sec- the penultimate episode. Uh, and I was like, Oh, that was kind of good. And then I thought about it and I was like, wait. And then like problem after problem started to, you know, sort of pop out in my, in my mind as I thought back on the episode, um, particularly as it pertains to, um, 
I'm assuming we don't have to issue a spoiler alert, but just in case. Yeah. As it pertains to uh, Simon, um, you know, uh, becoming, you know, sort of realizing that she's a transgender woman, changing her name to Candace, uh, as played by Adele Anderson. Uh, and that trope or that, well, real lived experience for many people, uh, being used as a trope and as a device, um, that has kind of long plagued, uh, the queer community and, um, trans people, uh, you know, the sort of violent murder. Yeah. Revengey kind of thing. And I was like, oh, maybe that's a really bad episode and a very weird one to end on. Yeah. Cause we had talked, you know, last time we talked about the Catherine Hahn episode, um, end of the line, we were like, that was such a good episode. Why aren't they ending with that? Why, you know, what is going to be in this next episode that, you know, is going to feel like a more appropriate capper for the season? And maybe it is a more appropriate capper because it's just like, it's by turns engrossing and entertaining and, um, like in some parts emotionally affecting and then also deeply problematic, which I think is just sort of the whole season of the Romanoffs, if, if I want to be honest. Um, but yeah, you know, we should mention Adele Anderson plays character of Candace, who we meet on the train. And yeah, I guess it was silly of me to try to pussyfoot around any sort, sort of spoilers, but like I, I was interested in it in this storyline until, you know, it was revealed that this character was like a vengeful murderess. And in that instance, I do like maybe people aren't aware of that as a trope for both like gay and trans characters in some, in certain kinds of fictions and films. But you know, that is a very damaging stereotype that has existed in, in stories. And so when I saw it playing out, I was like, Oh no, <laughs> like what? This, you know, the conversation that you and I, I think, had off air is like, once again, much like I think the Andrew Reynolds episode of earlier this season, it feels like if one other person had watched this or read the script, or, or why didn't someone read the script and raise this as an issue, you know? Yeah. And the thing about it that, you know, always comes up when we're talking about this particular issue, or anyone's talking about this particular issue, is... Not that, you know, you know, people of differing sexual orientation or gender identity can't be villains and things. Of course they can be. And, you know, they should be able to play or and and be embodied in whatever, you know, character that one can imagine. It's just it's just kind of when it's used as the hook, as when it's used as the twist, you know. Um, especially with, with trans people where like, oh, you know, like you think about the crying game or something where it's like, or sleepaway camp where it's like, here's the big reveal that feels cheap and exploitative. You know, I think something like, again, this is about a cis man, white man, but like talented Miss Ripley, that's a story about a queer murderer that I think is beautiful and actually gets at the heart of something, um, sort of dark and interesting about queer identity. So. It's, it's a tricky road to haul. And I think that like this episode would be so much richer without that nasty little twist at the end. Um, uh, you know, because- particularly because the vengeance is like such a nasty kind of vengeance because it's not vengeance on, on Dean, who is someone who has, you know, plagued him, uh, his whole life, but on this character of Jack, who we met in a previous episode. And so is someone that like we consider, and who seems throughout the episode relatively sympathetic. Like the episode starts with him helping like a woman struggling with her luggage and her small child. So this is a nice fellow. But maybe, I mean, maybe that's kind of the point is like, he's a nice guy because he has had the luxury of being brought up as like a pampered prince in his family and not cast out the way that his brother was. Um, 
Right. Well, you think about, you know, the Bolsheviks killing the czar's children. Yeah. Um, and, you know, is that to imply that this guy is somehow complicit in his family's legacy of exploitation and whatnot? Um, like the czar children were, I, I don't know. You know, it's a tricky topic and it, and it does fold into, um, that the, the sort of broader themes of the show interestingly in that way but then who is candace in that equation you know right. i don't know so it all feels a bit mudd- muddied just to kind of get this little thing in there and in a sense to spoil what had been a reasonably measured conversation about trans identity earlier in the episode i, I you know i i for myself, I quite liked that, uh, that conversation. And like, I, you know, I'll admit as a, you know, cis woman that I don't have all the insights into what, what feels like the right and wrong way to talk about trans identity. But that conversation in which, um, you know, Hugh Skinner, Hugh Skinner, Simon in the midst sort of of figuring out that he, that he is she and is Candace, um, has a conversation about like what it means and, 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 and is it as part of this group? And I actually kind of liked that reveal too. Cause like, let me backtrack for a second and say, I watched this episode in two parts because the episodes are so long. I think I got interrupted in the middle and had to walk away. And as I walked away, I was like, I'm pretty sure that the scene partner on the train is, it, that's a trans woman. That's a trans woman actress. So I was like, because I had the time away from the episode to think about, it, I was like, I'm pretty sure there's going to be some kind of like, trans twist which i'm apprehensive about but then i got to the um the like sort of self-help group or, or however therapy group however you want to call it um and i thought that was reveal was so interesting because it's a it's a camera pan around looking at like shoes and you just don't and and like the way that they've styled simon in that scene um you know just on on his way to her is uh, you know, I thought, I thought it was kind of interesting. And Hugh Skinner is a performer that I really respond to and have done in like Fleabag and Mamma Mia 2 and other things. And so, um, you know, I wanted to be there with this episode and I, I'm really sad that the ending landed the way that it did, you know? Well, yeah, I think that because of the, the, the sort of time jumping and the way that it shows, um, the sort of dawn of Candace and, 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 and her identity, like, um, it, it, it's not, it's, in an admirable way, I guess, it's, it's not linked to any event that we see. It's not like, oh, this guy rejected Simon and just sent him on this tailspin into gender dysphoria. You know, like, it, it's, it's not, they are not linking those causally at all, which right. I think is good. Um, and so to then, yeah, to kind of, you know, muck it up at the end. And also I think that, I, I responded, to, I liked the, the kind of inception era, like, esque, like, bumps back and back and deeper and deeper into the story, you know? Me too, me too, yeah. Like, I liked that layering device. I thought that was really, um, well done. Uh, and it gave the story such a sense of, well, time and depth, the way that, uh, you know, you think about uh, the OA, where that was such a storytelling exercise and, uh, or even the haunting of Hill House in a, in a sense, yeah, where you yeah. keep moving back and back. And I think that, you know, getting to the root of something, um, I like that a lot. And I thought it was rich with emotion with this poor kid and that actor was great. Um, and it just, yeah, it sort of, it did not, uh, stick the landing, so to speak. Um, which, you know, is not to dismiss the work of Adele Anderson, Adele Anderson, who I think is great. And, you know, just with a minor tweak here or there, I think this story, even of revenge and reprisal, comes off okay. Um, but in this instance, it didn't. 
Yeah, and I mean, there are, there are ways in which, uh, you know, if you don't know how the plot's going to unfurl going in, you see the way in which this character is rejected, um, you know, as Hugh Skinner plays the character, is rejected by family before you necessarily know exactly why. Um, because it's, you know, what you get a sense of is that, uh, you know, his dad, George, uh, as played by Ben Miles, who once again is an actor I, I quite like, and the Undine character both like could sense in Simon, uh, who becomes Candace or is Candace all along, um, this gender identity and like rejects the kid because of that you know and 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 that's just something that i think you or at least for me only becomes clear once you go like three steps back in this like weird nesting storyline which i which i quite like i and i liked the um like the the romance as it played out um in it's china right like where he is i'm sorry it's been a little while since i watched the episode i believe um, he's in hong kong oh in hong kong yeah and uh I liked that whole sequence a lot too. Um, so I don't know. It's just, it's, it's tricky. It's hard to fault a lot of the performers. Uh, except I would say Hera Hilmar is Ondine. That might not be her fault though, because Ondine is such like a, like, just unbelievably villainous creature that it's, that I think it would be hard to pull off that, that, uh, you know, performance and make that, that person feel, uh, real. I don't know yeah. if you would agree with that. Yeah, no, I, I, yeah. I mean, I think also like the stuff about fantasies are about like the wicked stepmom or all that stuff. Like, yeah, that's gendered too. It's a little played out. Um, maybe that was the point to kind of, pl- you know, work with those sort of old tropes and just figure out what, you know, to, to, to figure out a new thing to do with them. But I, I don't know. Um, I, I think in a broader sense, you know, just going back to how we started this conversation and, and in particularly in rewatching, um, the end of the line, uh, why? I mean, it really should have ended on that episode. Yeah, I'm not saying that this episode maybe shouldn't have been included. I mean, I I would you know prefer it if they had changed it some. But like thematically, into when we step back and look at the whole of this weird, expensive project, everything I think of real value that the show and and Weiner is trying to say is contained not in the episode called the one that holds everything right right but in the other one so yeah. I don't know. that's interesting um all right so is there anything else you want to say about like the romanoffs as a whole or this episode particularly before we kind of um, take one, a further step back i would just say that you know i think for for the purposes of our podcast i mean i don't know we can let the uh, listeners into like the sort of sausage factories aspect of it but like uh, this i think did not lend itself well to the, or, or 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 as well to this format than like westworld or sharp objects did you know because like it everything was so discreet that it felt hard to have a real through line yeah. um so that was an interesting experiment i think on our part on certainly on amazon's part um i i walk away from the series not disliking it certainly finding great fault in aspects of it but um for a few contained episodes i'm i i i, I enjoyed the experience I'm Claire Fallon. And I'm Emma Gray. We're culture writers, podcasters, and hosts of the show Love to See It. Every week, we give an unapologetically feminist dissection of reality dating shows, rom-coms, and other romance narratives. We unpack all the weird messages they send us about love, sex, and dating. And we dive into all the details with special guests like actors, authors, and cultural critics. 
You can find Love to See It wherever you get your podcasts. New episodes drop every Tuesday. Yeah, and I have to say that, um, and this happens sometimes when I do podcasting for TV, is that maybe I wouldn't have finished the season were it not for this show. And that's not like, that's not an expression of like deep dislike. It's just sort of, there's so much going on. Each episode is so long, you know, all of that's, you know, all that's happening. And so, um, you know, we'll talk about some of the other shows that we covered, but I think that sometimes I am like enormously rewarded, not just by watching something once through with you, but maybe even twice through and the depth of understanding I can get from doing that. So I'm glad we did it with the Romanoffs because it meant that I made it all the way to the penultimate episode, which is something I'm very glad that I watched. I'm not sure about the the finale, but you know, I'm glad that we made it uh, to the end of the line. So uh, let's take a little, a little tour back. Um, yeah, and we should say once again to sort of show you how the sausage gets made. We have to make these decisions about what we're going to cover, oftentimes sight unseen, almost always sight unseen. So we didn't know what the Romanoffs was, and we didn't even know like the runtime of the episodes or that each episode would be quite so discreet um, from each other. So you know, these are these are just choices we make on you know using the best of our knowledge in terms of you know the the filmmakers involved and all that sort of thing. So uh, let's hop one one show back i'm gonna hop over the like fall mini series that we did to the show that i think might have lent itself the best to this format which was hbo's sharp objects um this is a show that i love the more that i think about it and i think it was really enriched by the conversations that you and i had about it the fact that it's based on a book so we could look at the source material all of that um you know with, with a few months away from it richard what are you what are your feelings on sharp objects yeah, I mean, I think it worked well for for this, and I and I certainly enjoyed it. And really, you know, uh, what I what I really enjoyed about it, do, watching the show, and in correlation to doing this podcast, was being forced, in a sense, to watch the episodes more than once. And in that, really uh, growing to deeply appreciate um, Jean Marc Vallée's whole approach to the whole thing, and his his aesthetic, and and how really beautifully it synced up with the kind of story it was telling, you know, I think it's rare that you get such a sharp pairing of, well, no pun intended, of, um, <laughs> of, of director and material when the director didn't write the material, you know? Right. Yeah. Um, so I appreciated that and, you know, everyone's so good on it and, you know, it hasn't lingered with me in any sort of, I'm not haunted by the show, but probably be because I was approaching it more as work. But, um, but yeah, I think it was good for us. I mean, I think I had more fun with Westworld just because that was so many different um, theories. And I, you know, I get into that kind of mode. Well, I haven't for a long time, so not since Lost. So it was nice to kind of do that again. <laughs> yeah, yeah. That said, I real do that see the, 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 doing this, this with you, who's sort of the expert on this. Like I realized that how bad I am at predicting anything <laughs> <laughs> or like noticing little clues or Easter eggs. I'm just not good at it. Well, I want to, yeah, let me, before we roll back to Westworld, which I'm excited to talk about again, I do want to um, say really quickly that, you know, y- you and I host another podcast, co-host another podcast called Little Gold Men, where we talk about award season. Mm-hmm. The Golden Globes are just about to be announced uh, tomorrow as we're recording this. They'll probably already be out. The nominations will already be out by the time you guys are listening to this. Um, but I was I was discussing um, a, a film that has been in the conversation uh, for a while, sight unseen, which is Vice. I was talking to Todd Vanderwoof of um, Vox.com about Vice, and he's like maybe the only uh, critic that I know that really likes that film. It's probably it's been pretty universally disliked but in the conversation for so long around that film was amy adams who plays uh lynn cheney 
to Christian Bale's Dick Cheney in, in this film, Vice, which will be out later this month in December. And, uh, you know, whether or not this was her year, which we've heard over and over again with Amy Adams, who's a great performer. And it keeps like, you know, like Arrival was her year and she was on the campaign trail for big eyes, but maybe didn't want to be like, you know, it's just every year. It seems like it's Amy Adams year. When we were talking about Amy Adams, I was just like, I really need her to win something as much as awards mean anything for sharp objects, because I think that that is just a case of an actor throwing everything she has against the wall for a role and whatever does and doesn't work in sharp objects. And in you know, my opinion, most of it does. I think her performance is just something that we're really lucky to be able to watch. So, Oh yeah, no, I, I totally endorse that. I mean, it's, it's really, um, I think it's some of the best stuff she's ever done, you yeah. know, uh, and, and to do it all at that intensity for that many hours, you know, it's not a two hour movie. It's, it's long. Um, and to be kind of in that headspace convincingly, uh, as long and tirelessly, uh, as she was, um, yeah, I mean, hats off to her and hopefully she'll be richly rewarded for, you know, in a way that the Academy just keeps failing to. <laughs> um, yeah. And we should mention more, I don't know, but one other thing is that, um, you know, actors, when they're in like an awards buzzy show or give an awards buzzy performance like that, usually do so much campaigning. But Amy Adams has, I think, since the show came out, not done any press about it and did very little press beforehand. And, you know, the reason that she gave was because it was sort of like a really hard and traumatic performance for her. And she doesn't really want to revisit it. And I entirely believe her. And that, to me, speaks even a little bit more to her performance, that it really just genuinely did soak into her, and she doesn't want to, like, really go back there, and who can blame her? So, um, Speaking of women in trauma, let's talk about Westworld. Um, I agree with you, Richard, that that was maybe of all the shows that we did this year, no, definitely the most fun to do. Like, it was just really fun to talk to you and to talk to the fandom uh, about this very like twisty theory friendly show and stuff like that. And I think it was the show that like our listeners had the most fun listening to. Cause I think just that kind of TV mystery box TV for better or worse is uh, something that hooks people in a, in a different way than, uh, you know, a, a searing drama about self harm and murder in the South. Yeah, no, for sure. I mean, we you can obviously be funnier about it. You can make jokes like in a way that like, you don't want to make a joke about, you know, gay tragedy and Versace or whatever, you know? Um, but, uh, I think the funny thing about doing the podcast on Westworld was that, uh, obviously I was thoroughly invested at the time, but I was recently trying to think of something. Oh, a song. It was a song that played in the series finale of Westworld season two, uh, or season finale of the, the Radiohead song. And I was trying to figure out which one it was. And so I went and like, found the queued up on HBO go like the moment where I think the song, I thought the song started playing and it started playing. And I was like, Oh wait, I have no idea what's happening. I have, I do not remember (laughs) at all. So I kind of went back and rewatched the last episode. This was like last week. Um, (laughs) and I was reminded of how, how, how busy and all this stuff was going on, but I really like, uh, it's that it's such a dense show that, um, even, even in doing a like thorough podcast about it, I still didn't retain stuff, which is amazing. I think that's true for me as well in terms of Westworld. It's, it's a, it's a show where, you know, the enjoyment of it lingers with me. The mood of it lingers with me and certain things like, um, that, that like 
what we thought was like a lost inspired cold open or everything that Ben Barnes did. Like certain things just really, really stick, but, but the really twisty reveal of things, especially in that finale don't, aren't like sticking with me. Um, you know, and, and I don't know if that's a criticism of the show or of that kind of storytelling to begin with, but it's like, yeah, it's more like moods, like the Akichita episode mm-hmm. that really sticks with me big time. Of course, I thought that was tremendous storytelling, but yeah, just like some of the like nitty gritty of like whose mind ball is inside what body at what point. I mean, that's just, I don't know. It's not something yeah. that my brain wants to hold on to. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I think it's also like, I, I think the mood thing, that's right. I, I certainly, you know, palpably feel and remember, you know, the, the sort of experience of watching this season um, and certainly talking about it with you. Um, but I'm also someone who watched probably five seasons of the walking dead and could name maybe two characters, <laughs> you know, like I just like yeah. certain particular details. I just can't hold on to. Um, but, but that doesn't mean I didn't like it at all. It, it just means that I was immersed in a different way. Yeah. All right. And then we get to our last, um, episode. first our, yeah, our last show, which is the first that we ever talked about together, you and I alone on our own podcast. And that is, uh, the assassination of Johnny Versace by that coward Robert. No, um, <laughs> American crime story. And, uh, this is the one that I think has like aged the best for me over the year. And I think that's true for a lot of critics. Actually, I've talked to a lot of critics who just like sort of uh, this show, I think got mixed mixed positive but mixed reviews when it first came out and i think most critics that i've talked to by the end of the year are considering it like actually one of their favorites or 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 people who came to it later and maybe binged it also i think seem to really enjoy it more than people who maybe only watched like the first four episodes that came out on screeners or something like that um and you know Dar- we're we're also like continually revisiting the show because Darren Chris is on this like sort of award season juggernaut train of like surely you know won the Emmy surely is going to win the golden globe probably you know et cetera et cetera and so and, and i think as well he should so uh what are your feelings on versace now yeah i think it's like a work of ambition it it certainly uh you know that that encompasses so much yeah it's still you know is held in high esteem in it for my position uh i don't miss the experience of watching it though like it was such an exhausting thing to kind of just be in that headspace watching episodes multiple times um you know, cause I had reviewed it earlier before we started the podcast. So I had to go back and watch it, you know, you know, um, but no, I mean, it's, uh, I'm glad that people have come around on and I think people weren't really sure what to make of it at first because it didn't have quite the same hook as people versus OJ. Um, but those who stuck with it, those who went back and revisited it, I, it does seem anecdotally have been, um, glad that they did and impressed by it, which, you know, I'm glad that, uh, that it had some lasting power because there is so much, I mean, it's, you know, an offset thing these days, but there is just so much television that it's, it's easy enough for something to be good and, and memorable, you know, while you're watching it, but it's hard for it to be memorable. Um, you know, there are plenty of shows, you know, shows, one seasons of a show, of a show that I've watched, uh, that I've really enjoyed at the time being thought about for maybe a two couple days after, and then it's gone. Um, so for something, granted, this is a huge thing with star power and produced by the biggest guy in television, whatever, but still for that to help held on for the better part of a year, um, uh, despite a kind of quiet debut, I think that's a testament to its uh, value. 
Yeah, absolutely. And I agree with you, of course, that it was, yeah. Remember how we had to record an episode on Valentine's Day? Remember that? Yeah, um, I do. So, you know, I, I agree with you that the experience of watching and recording was, like, once again, not nearly any kind of fun the way that Westworld was. But, um, but you know, the mood that I talked about with Westworld, uh, I would intensify even more with Versace. I get, like, a holistic mood from that thing. It's just like, it's of a piece in a way, you know, that I would say sharp objects definitely is. I think Westworld was kind of too erratic in, um, quality to be of a piece for me. But, um, I think Versace, the, the overall story that I was telling the ambition of the rewind sort of idea, um, all of that is really, really stuck with me. And, and one thing I was glad to t- see, I, I quit American Horror Story, I don't know, a season and a half ago, probably something like that. But I guess, uh, Cody Fern was on American Horror Story Apocalypse this year. So that, you know, and a ton of people watch that way more than watch Versace. Um, and loved him. Apparently he was amazing. And I still haven't watched it, but apparently he was amazing in it. And, and, um, uh, playing, I believe the Antichrist. And so, um, that is really exciting to me because I think if we came out of, that with anything, it was like, you know, a hope for Darren Chris to be rewarded for the good work he did. For me, a, a, an elevated opinion of Max Greenfield, not just because of his performance, but because of the, the, the thoughtful way he talked about his performance, I found really, really arresting. Um, and then a hope for enormous bright future for Cody Fern. So. Yeah. Yeah. Um, speaking of the future, do we want to kind of preview 2019 that we actually have more mapped out than we did when we first started this project this year? Yeah. Even though HBO is not paying us, we will be a bit of an HBO podcast for a little while. Well, um, the reason they're not paying us is because Joanna and I are orphans owned by HBO. <laughs> We were we were left at the doorstep years ago. Right, this is uh, sort of like an indentured servitude. Or yeah, so we're we're not being paid, but we do work for them. Um, no, we don't. But it just so happens that like the most still watching these shows yeah. coming up next year happen to well, it happens to be three HBO shows. Yep. So we are starting. You know, if all goes according to plan, this is something you think about over the next week because we'll be next couple weeks because we'll be back in 2019, starting with True Detective season three. And I which, think, sorry, go ahead. Which I know we've been burned on True Detective before, yeah. not you and I personally, but us as a TV watching collective. Um, but we, I don't know, we have faith about this one. I think, you know, I was definitely burned by True Detective season two, um, and, you know, have certain amount of trepidation around any, um, Nick Pizzolatto join, if I'm being honest. But I think you and I would agree that, you know, the presence of Marshall Ali, uh, as the lead in this, not to mention, uh, Stephen Dorff, who's a big, I'm a big fan of, um, is, is enough to sort of get, draw us back in. So, and True Detective, when it's at its best, aka like the best of season one, is like Westworld, even though a little bit more, you know, grim, uh, a fun theory show. Genuinely is. Oh, yeah. Season one Mm -hmm. was. So, you know. Yeah, and season two was a strange, like, tone poem where I feel like ha- every other page of the script got, like, like blew away in the wind. And then they were like, I think this is the full script. Let's just film this as is. And it made no sense. <laughs> right. Exactly. Um, and then uh, the most Vanity Fair show that I can think of comes next from HBO, which is Big Little Lies, season two, uh, this time with Meryl Streep. 
So, uh, well, we just started talking about the, or just stopped talking about the bad second season of an HBO of a lauded HBO show. So let's hope that this does not follow True Detective's example. Um, how could it if Andrea Arnold is directing every episode? Exactly. Um, I think that's so exciting. The Meryl Streep it, it factor is yes, exciting, but like we see her every year. We know what she can do. Andrea Arnold is a rare, uh, creator. Um, she made American, uh, Honey and, uh, Fish Tank and a number of other good movies. So, uh, she's exciting. Um, the thing I'm most excited about uh, when we look ahead to Bay Little Lies Part 2. Yeah, it is an interesting thing because the first season was obviously based on the book by Leanne Moriarty. And then this one goes beyond. And, you know, it, it, it feels like a thing where when they announced the second season, I was like, but why, though? Right? Because mm-hmm. the first season feels so contained. That ending feels like such an ending. But then you mentioned Andrea Arnold and you mentioned Meryl Streep. And I'm like, yeah, okay. All right. We'll see what you guys got to do. I mean, it's a great cast. No matter what, I hope it's just, yeah, I hope it's a fun, uh, murdery jaunt back to Monterey. We'll see. Yeah. And the interesting thing will be to see without Jean-Marc Vallée's very particular directorial stamp, what the whole tone and, and rhythm yeah. of the show is. Um, it could be good. It could be bad. I don't know. I, I have, again, faith in Andrea Arnold, but... We'll find out this uh, late winter. Yeah, one thing I will say is that perhaps the soundtrack won't be quite as mm. interesting as it always is in a Jean-Marc Vallée joint. All right, last one. There's a show that um, I don't know if our listeners have heard of. Um, I, you've never seen it before. No, so this will be my first. This will be my introduction to a little HBO show called Game of Thrones. Yeah. Uh, have you seen it, Richard? Yeah, I do like five podcasts on it. Oh, wait, uh-huh. sorry, that's you. Okay. <laughs> no, I, ha- I have seen uh, Game of Thrones before. I've seen every episode. Um, I remain a wary fan, I would say. The show has lost me a bit since the book material went away. Sure. Um, but just because, you know, how do you... You can't really recreate something that dense when you're working on a TV production schedule. And, you know, it, it, every episode would have to be 14 hours long if you wanted to really get into everything. So, um, you know, I think it's, we're, we're well past the, the shallow now in terms of George <laughs> R. R. Martin's uh, vision of this thing. So I'll be see, you know, and it's the end. So, um, I have my theories, speaking of making theories, uh, about how things are going to wind up, mostly because of like reading you and other people who know what they're talking about. Um, but I think it'll be an interesting project because we're coming in so late in a show's run. Um, and it just so happens to be the biggest show in the world, but for, you know, and the biggest since a long time ago, you know? Yeah, absolutely. Um, what year was it that you did, you did this piece where you're like, everything that's ever happened on Game of Thrones? Do you remember that? Oh gosh. Think? I think that was in, in anticipation of the fourth season premiere. No, so, really? That was so, that was like our first quite, year at Vanity Fair, I think. Quite a bit ago. Yeah. Wow. All right. So, you know, you want to go back and read that. That was a really fun thing that Richard did. I want to say that, that was like you did it before season five, but maybe it was before season four. I, yeah. I, I could, maybe I'm, I, I, I don't think I would have the capacity to remember four seasons of that show, but maybe. Um, but like, is there something that you and I could do to like help ourselves remember what's going on in Game of Thrones? Man, I mean, I think we're gonna have to rewatch it all. That's what I think. So, but not just rewatch. I mean, if we're just if we're just gonna rewatch it and yeah. not talk about it, what's the point of that? So, wait, are we gonna rewatch every episode and maybe do an episode of this podcast about each episode? Oh, I don't know if we're gonna go that deep, but but we will definitely be discussing some old episodes of Game of Thrones on the Still Watching feed. So keep your eye out for that in 2019. Uh, speaking, I want to give our listeners like a little preview of a piece that I have going up on VF. It'll already be up by the time you guys hear this, but um. Speaking of like 
how it's kind of impossible to adapt George R. R. Martin. I was reading the script, his last script that he wrote, which is back in season four, and um, which is uh, Prince Joffrey's wedding and or King Joffrey's wedding and and the death of of Joffrey. That's the last the purple wedding. The last script that George R. R. Martin wrote, and it's the his script is very different from what ended up on the screen. And one of the things that was just making me laugh and shake my head in affection and oh, George is like his description of the feast, yeah. which is like six pages of script long. And Weiss and Benny Alpha are basically like, yeah, no, we're not serving swan and then boar and then pike and then whatever. So, um, yeah, we, we, we have a lot of affection for George, a lot of affection for the show when it's good, a lot of affection for. I have certain favorites. Do you have like a, sorry, quickly before we go, this is my, this is my, your holiday gift to me. Who are your top two favorite characters in Game of Thrones? Um, until, well, from the books and then until recently on the show, Sansa. Uh huh. But I don't, there was a little detail when the dogs ate the guy where, where she kind of turned a little bit cruel that I didn't love. But I mean, that guy deserved it, but I didn't like her little smirk. But no, she remains someone I'm rooting for. Um, and then, oh, you know, I suppose like I'm rooting for Pod, Podrick. Oh, nice. <laughs> yeah. Who's yours? Who are yours? Oh, I'm a, a Jamie fan. Jamie's good. And a Jorah fan. But that's show Jorah, not book Jorah. So that's my, those are my allegiances personally. So we will I see. Also I also like mean, the reads, yeah. the reads, jo- Jojen and, well, yeah. one, of them's left, one of them's dead, but. Jojen, like Jojen of Love Actually fame. Love that mm, kid. Mm-hmm. All right. So. On on that note, on the love actually note, we will we will say goodbye to you guys for the holidays. Uh, wish you happy holidays. Thank you so much for listening to us all year. Um, like through the highs and the lows of television. Yeah, no, it's like a, it's like it's. A, I realize that th- these things are time commitments, both not just for us but for you out there too. So we really appreciate it. We also, you know, ever as ever increase uh, appreciate your feedback. Be it positive or negative, you're, you know, you're allowed to criticize us, certainly. Uh, we often deserve it. Um, not always, but often. Uh, and, uh, yeah, we hope that you'll stick with us in the new year. I know that some of these shows, we're kind of jumping around in genre, but that's kind of the fun of it. Uh, and if you're not a diehard Game of Thrones person, that's okay, because we're not, we're not, Joanna has like real diehard podcasts, and we're, this is not going to be those, so. Oh, don't no. Worry. This is going to be Joanna and Richard talk about how yeah. much they love xyz of game of thrones um all right so as as richard mentioned we still have our email slash podrick Payne fan account which is still watching pod at gmail.com where you can email us any of your thoughts over the holidays thank you so much for your emails about still watching and also all of your tweets where you're like where's that episode because it made me feel like people are actually listening to the ramen off series which i wasn't sure about um until the new year where can people find you richard I am going to be going on a murder spree all the way back to my hazy Midwestern hometown that happens to be in a theme park full of robots. Oh, man, you got it. You got it all. (laughs) (laughs) I was. (laughs) You left me nothing. I'm also on Twitter. Where are you? (laughs) You're coming with me. That's Uh, a surprise. Yeah, surprise. (laughs) I'll be getting on the train uh, to Westworld Objects Versaceville um, with Richard. Richard's at Rylaws. I meant Joe wrote this. You can find us on Twitter. And we will see you all in 2019.